This morning we conclude our series on Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica, and our text comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 24. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. This is the word of the Lord. As we come to the end of this letter... Um, it, he's really concluding a section that he began in, in chapter 4 where he says, how do we live in order to please God? And just very quickly, for the benefit of those of you who uh, are here this morning exploring faith, this phrase of how do we please God or the idea of pleasing God, it's quite different in Christianity than in other world religions. This last week on Thursday, I was at the University of Waterloo doing an event called Faith and Reason. I'm regularly there, and after I do a little talk on the subject of how you can be a, a person of reason, uh, an intellect, and then also be a person of faith and believe in uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now those two, two things uh, can coincide. And they always put me on the hot seat after in Q&A, and they ask all kinds of questions. And, and one of the questions was, well, why Christianity over all these other world religions? I have so many religions to choose from. And briefly... I, for those of you exploring this morning, the answer would be this. It, it, it ties into Paul saying, how do we please God? In all world religions, you have a leader or a, a guru or a teacher uh, or a prophet, and they are, they are asserting that they have a revelation from God and they're giving the pathway towards uh, salvation or the afterlife or, or, or the like. And in all of the other world religions, the main actor in your success is you. The main actor in your salvation is you. The determining factor on whether or not you are accepted by the deities or the gods or absorbed into the Brahman or you please Allah or pick your world religion, the determining factor is you and the life you lived. In Christianity, the main actor is not you. We are the ones acted upon. The main actor is Jesus Christ, that the God of the Bible does not sit back and cross his arms. The God of the Bible got very dirty and very messy and very involved, and he humiliated himself, and he wrapped himself in the clothes of his own creation. He comes in Jesus Christ, and he stretches out his arms. And when we trust that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, God uh, incarnate, who came to restore the bridge between a wayward humanity and our souls that go off into wayward worship with our God. When we trust that, we are received and loved and accepted by his grace. And therefore, the life that we live, this business of pleasing God, 
is not so that in the end we're accepted. We do it from acceptance. It is not so that in the end we are loved. We do it from love. In other words, Christians have this thing called assurance. By grace. We live our lives and we, we have days where we are faithful and days where we, we falter. And you know people in your life who claim to be Christians and they're wonderful, loving people. You know other people in your life and they claim to be Christians and maybe not so much. And, and there's this ebb and flow of the grittiness of, of, of what it is to be human, which is, is a journey of renewal. But Christians are not saved by our progress. We're saved by Christ's perfection. And so I hope that's helpful for you. Much more could be said, but I'm not going to take any time to do that. But you can reach out to me. I'd be happy to have a coffee with you and we can have a dialogue around Christian faith. But suffice it to say, when we get to this point in the letter, um, this is not just a hodgepodge of commands at the end of, uh, of his letter. There's, there's an intention here and how he closes it out. This morning, we're going to look at the call to the church and then the power for the church. So first, the call to the church. He ends the letter with a call to build and become a community of peace. And a community, all kinds of communities can rally around causes, beliefs, passions. Um, and yet you can be, re, remain an individual in that community. You can rally around the same purpose and cause and yet be unattached from the other members in that community. A healthy church community is a byproduct of spiritual maturity because it requires that we decenter ourselves and we enter into the joys and the pains of the other people sitting in the chairs around us. This is very different. For example, you can join the Rotary or a sports league or a book club or a neighborhood association, or you can get behind a justice and mercy endeavor in the city, and you can rally there with people, but you don't have to be in each other's lives intimately. You're just rallied around the cause. If you went to a Rotary meeting and before the meeting started, the leader said, uh, thanks for everybody coming out. We care about our community. And just before we get started, why don't you break into groups of two or three and just share a little bit about some of the struggles in your lives. Just encourage each other. The response is going to be, um, excuse me, we're not, we didn't sign up for that. There might be some close friends in the room that might do it, but it wouldn't be expected. It's like we're rallying around a cause. That's why our community exists. But I'm not going to get intimate in each other's lives. You can use all the, the rhetoric you want at work about it being, you know, we share values and, and, and this is like a family or whatever sort of rhetoric there can be around. We're building a great team and a great culture and we really care. Hey, we've humanized work here. We care about the people. Yeah, you do. But if you started a staff meeting with breaking the groups of two or three, they're going to be like, that is wildly inappropriate. It's like, no, that's not why we're here. Christian community is a byproduct of this maturity because to build a community of peace, it, it, the apostle is assuming that there's an intimacy here. And I say this all the time at Redeemer, and I'm going to say it again. There's 200 people in here, probably more. We're not going to know each other closely, deeply. We don't need to. But we, we should have some close, intimate friendships, two or three, where we can really begin to walk out this business of being a community of peace. We grow into this new humanity together. We're on, a we're on a trajectory of transformation that we all care about. Yes, we've all gathered here on Sunday morning at Redeemer because we're like, hey, we all worship Jesus, we celebrate his grace, and that's why we gather. That's the basis for gathering. Amen. It's the subject of the book of Galatians. But not only Jesus. It's not just, hey, I'm just here for sermons. Pastor, please stay 30 to 50 feet away from me in my life. <laughs> don't get intimately involved. Don't ask me any questions about, like, 
that's not what we've signed up for. There is this, there is this closeness. In verse 12 and 13, um, he says, you know, that you're to hold these, the, the leaders, those who care for you and admonish you in the Lord, hold them in the highest regard and love. Some translations say esteem the leadership. You might say, oh, here we go. This is pretty self-serving. The pastor gets up there and it's like 25 minutes on esteeming leadership. Don't worry. I'm not going to do that. That would be weirdly narcissistic. But, and it seems self-serving. But I want you to notice how he phrases this. You're not supposed to esteem the leadership because of their position. You're not to esteem leadership because of their because to have a position is prestigious because of the work, because of the, the, the ministry of the gospel. And that teaches us something as this starts to unpack. Because um, the way in which the leaders, leaders are supposed to lead, Jesus said, and the apostles picked up, is not like the other nations who lord it over other people. There's, there's supposed to be a servant leadership where we have a king who stoops and so that should form the way that the leadership is but to esteem very highly in love what does this really mean if we're doing it for the work's sake uh, I'll give you an example and it's not going to be a Formula One example because I feel like I've really done a disservice to all the hockey fans in this church so I did some research for this parable follow along with me little Timmy's in his driveway he's practicing his wrist shot when a big black SUV pulls up and the window goes down and there's Austin Matthews. And Austin Matthews says to little Timmy, little Timmy, I've been watching you take some wrist shots from over here parked across the street creepily in my big black SUV. And Timmy, I noticed that your hands, they're too close to your body. What you need to do to generate power in a wrist shot is, insert hockey vernacular here. Okay? That was the best I could do. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't want to be disingenuous. And so, if little Timmy esteems Austin Matthews, to esteem him is not to say, you're so great, you're so wonderful, I think you're just the greatest, most bestest center in all of the NHL. That's not, that wouldn't be esteeming him, that would be flattering him, encouraging him. You could pick a lot of other words. To esteem him would be to say, thank you for that, and make an adjustment. Then he's esteemed. But if Austin Matthew drives away and little Timmy just keeps on doing wrist shots like he's a stop-mo character from, you know, Wallace and Gromit, he didn't esteem him because he didn't take anything that he said seriously. So the apostle wants there to be this unity in the church. And I got to tell you, this is pretty shocking. The leaders in this church, just by way of reminder, they're three weeks old, right? The apostle was there for three weeks in Thessalonica and then he gets run out of town. But there's been people who've been set over each other in the church. But they've been saved the same period of time. And the church is only three weeks old. <laughs> and one of the leaders is like saying to like somebody else in the church, listen, I noticed that the way that you're talking to your wife, it sounds a lot like she's your property. And I know that that is the way that our city is. But the apostles were here for three weeks. And as they were like downloading as rapidly as they could, they seemed to be teaching us that we ought not to relate to our wives like property. Um, and so I want to admonish you, brother, not to relate this way. Come on, Maximus, get off my back. We came to Jesus on the same day. Jeez, get over yourself. Can you imagine how difficult that would have been? I'm over you now. Three weeks training. Incredible. I mean, not only this, but like, it's, it's the apostle 
It's a preemptive apostolic strike so that they don't stratify the church in the same way that the, 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 the culture was just highly stratified and now in a short period of time there's class systems in the church. So he's calling for this unity. It's amazing. Fast forward to today where many of us, many of us feel like we are just ill-equipped, inequipped. We cannot lead, right? Uh, it's the battle cry of the modern church. I need more training. Oh my goodness. I doubt it. My friend... We could all use with more training. I could use more training. But I need you to know that the reason why you're probably not reaching out to really actively care and love and serve and disciple and come around side one another is probably not because you need more training. You might need more willingness. You might need more dependency on God. You might, there might be a handful of things but if you've been worshiping Jesus and you love him longer than a month, you have more training than this church. And so there could be a lot of other speed bumps and why we were, we're like, I'm, you know, when, some, when, when it's like raise the hand and let's build and lead and do things, there could be a lot of reasons why. And it's getting pretty hot in here, so let's just move on. Uh, verse 13, he, the apostle says he wants them to live in peace. And in every single community, there's an opportunity for hurt. In family, your friend group, your sports teams, at work, here at church. At church, of course, the expectations are very high. So when we're hurt, it goes very deep. And rightly so, the expectations should be high. We love Jesus. We, we claim that we want to be like him. So rightly so. Uh, but this term, living at peace... You know, it implies that there's this commitment to staying in community. And some of us have decided, yes, but I have a solution for how I will live at peace with everybody else here at Redeemer. And it is called keeping people at arm's length. Because then, nobody can get close, close enough to me to disappoint me, and I won't get close enough to anybody else to disappoint them. It's been a wonderful solution on living in peace with my brothers and sisters, and it's called not knowing any of them. The problem is, is we see how this plays this text plays out, even if you've only, you know, been looking at the scripture for five minutes, you can look and say, oh, wait a second, this is leading to some things. We can't keep people at an arm's, arm's length because then he's calling the apostle to, he's calling not just uh, the leaders in the church, but he's calling everybody in the church to live a particular way, to come into a place of community, to get things figured out, have some deep conversations at the Waffle House. All love. He wants to see this happen. And you see it starting in verse 14. And it plays out in verse 14. Warn the idle and the disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. He's calling the whole church to do this. Warn, encourage, help. How are we going to know who needs to be warned and who needs to be encouraged and who needs to be helped in this room if we don't actually know anybody well enough to be able to you know, discern how to minister? There's a handful of golfers in this room. And uh, I'm going to just go ahead and assume, even though I'm not, I've, I've played golf before, but I'm not a golfer. When I break 100, I'm like, yes, okay? I'm just going to go ahead and assume you have more than one club in your bag. And you need to, because you got to develop some tools. And uh, there's a comedian, Nate Bargatze, and he tells this hilarious story of going golfing with his wife. And they're on the way to the first tee, and she says, I have to use the washroom. And he's like, well, we got a tee off. So he, he 
He gives her the cart and pulls out his driver. He says, use the washroom and then meet me down on the green. So she goes into the washroom and he takes his first shot. Or sorry, he says, meet me in the fairway. Takes his first shot, he's waiting in the fairway. Well, she, she comes out of the washroom and goes the wrong direction. And then she's driving around the golf course for forever and he has to play four holes with his driver. And he's like, man, he's on, he's on the green. He's like, you know how much you gotta choke up on a driver? He's holding the driver head in his hand, trying to putt, seven putt, fortunately. And so you need more than one tool. And you'll notice that in verse 14, there's more than one tool. He's calling the, the people, the congregation, to warn and encourage and help, to exercise some discernment, to grow as, as students of God's word and of God's ways so that they can create this community of peace. And not just say, well, this is the way that I am, and so <laughs> I just use the same club for every situation. When you look at verses 14 and 15, he, he starts out with the idle and the disruptive. It's an interesting combination. It's actually a pretty terrible and toxic combination. They're not disruptive because they're you know, busy with their sleeves rolled up building the church, and then they know that they've got constructive criticisms. They're idle and they're disruptive. And it's actually a military word that Paul uses in the original Greek, which which they would use to say a soldier breaks rank or they're marching out of step. It's this idea of being self-willed, having a myopic focus, having a myopic sort of preference. So when you get into that zone, you can't, you can't function as a minister because you're functioning like a dissatisfied connoisseur. You're just constantly complaining about things that you don't like, but you're not, going, you're not really engaged to sort of be a part of the solution. It would be like... A, a, you know, the vernacular of people who are disruptors and kicking the ladder up. Well, that's actually tremendous if you're committed to building. If you've, ever been a, if you've ever been a part of an organization where they hire somebody else who comes into leadership or management, I was in this the five years before planting Redeemer with Susan and the team, where I was brought in as a director where they wanted to change the direction of an organization. There's a ministry right now in Canada called ShareWord Global. But when I was there, it was the Gideons International in Canada. You know the Bible guys putting the Bibles in the hotels where they like, we got to do a massive shift, this huge thing. 100-year-old organization, 4,000 members across Canada. So when I came in, I couldn't just go, I'm here to kick the ladder out. I'm just going to bring my spiritual gift and just burn everything to the ground. And every time somebody comes up with an idea, I'm going to say, that's an old antiquated idea that we can no longer do. What needs to be done is you've got to build. And so in the five years that I was there, I did kick a lot of ladders out, but we, I had to roll my sleeves up and build something new, be a part of building something new. So the apostles, like, the idle and the disruptive in the church, they just get frustrated. And because they're idle, the frustration just sort of festers. And this is the dilemma. It's like, <clears throat> am I going to be a part of building this beautiful thing that I love, or am I going to just sort of, sort of sit back and be frustrated by it? You move on to the disheartened, and the disheartened are, and so we need to, sorry, so we need to warn. He says, you've got to warn those people. So it's not, it's not an angry warning, it's with love. He says that whether, they're, whether they need to be warned because they're idle and disruptive, or they're, or they're disheartened, or they're weak, this all needs to be done with patience, the text says. So there's a love and a patience with this. The disheartened are the small soul. It could be translated small soul. It means something happened in their life that caused them to lose heart. They've been through trauma. They've been through something. They've lost courage. They've become timid. They need someone to come alongside them, walk with them, encourage them, draw the gifts out of them, help them get reconnected. And then there's the weak, and the weak must be helped. The weak can't bear their own burdens. The weak need us to come along and help bear the burdens. 
help alleviate the pressures. Be very, very practical. All of this is to done, be done with patience. It's very humbling, of course, because as I said when I began the sermon today, we're saved by God's grace. And so if that's true, then we can, our posture towards all of these folks needs to be one of patience because we're not any better than any of them. This entire section in this text is a call for us to take on the nature of God, walk in a new humanity called long-suffering. It's this idea of, of recognizing that God is long-suffering with his people. You read through the Old Testament, God doesn't get angry in the morning and set things on fire in the afternoon. He gave people years to turn and repent, sometimes decades to turn and repent, sometimes centuries to turn and repent before there was ever any judgment. His patience is divine. And so he's calling us to relate to one another with this sense of love and of patience. He says in verse 15, make sure that nobody um, pays back wrong for wrong. Don't pay back evil for evil. Maybe you're visiting this morning, exploring Christian faith, and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but I, I don't know much about the Bible, but I'm familiar with this phrase, an eye for an eye. Oh, that, that came from the Bible. An eye for an eye. It did come from the Bible. It's from Leviticus. But it's in the law, and it's not a prescribed way of life. In context, an eye for an eye is not, here's how the people of God ought to live. An eye for an eye. No, that's the opposite of how we're supposed to live. That's why Jesus said in, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. But I tell you, offer the other cheek. In other words, respond to persecution in a way that invites a kiss. So, an eye for an eye in its original context was actually, it was jurisprudence. It was limiting judgment. It was limiting punishment. If, if, somebody, uh, if somebody's uh, animal came into your yard and destroyed your crop, um, you didn't burn their house down and kill them and kill their whole family. And the ancient world operated with craziness like that. The retribution was off the chain. So an eye for an eye was not a prescribed way of life. It was a way of saying, let the punishment fit the crime. Be people of justice. So he says this because he doesn't want the church to be a doormat, but he doesn't want them to become guilty in the church of just relating to everybody tit for tat and being guilty of the very injustice that we have ourselves experienced. Oh, this person hurt me or offended me or, or whatever. I'm going to do the exact same thing back to them. So to create this community of peace, it sounds amazing. It's tempting to be like, oh man, a community of peace, a church where there's love and care and compassion and patience. I'll take it. Perfect. I mean, this is a providential timing of this sermon because I've been looking for a church like that. I'll take it. No, no, no. You don't take it. You don't shop for it. You don't find it. You build it. We build it. In some ways, this describes the Redeemer and praise the Lord. In other ways, it doesn't. So what are you going to do when you encounter the opposite? Are you going to go shop for it? Good luck with that. It's impossible. You have to build it. We all have to be committed to build it. Ah, oh, yes, I'll have a number one community combo, please, with a, a side order of mission and some extra exegetical sauce. And, oh, I'll also have three small, rich, meaningful friendships, please. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold the weak people. Um, <laughs> I've got a padlock on my schedule. Hashtag self-care. No, you can't do that. We have to build it. And like anything in the world worth having, it takes time. So let's move on from the call to the church to build and become this community of peace to the power for the church, which is to live in the rhythms of worship 
united to the very God of peace. And that's how the letter ends. It ends with a call to worship. The rhythm of worship is a gift of empowering grace, this gradual, ongoing renewal. The New Testament uses the the image of the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit grows gradually, slowly. It's painfully slow. The growth is so slow, it's imperceptible. But over time, it's inevitable. It's eventual. That's the fruit in your life and mine. That's the fruit in this community. So we exercise the patience, the love, the care. We get out of ourselves to love and to serve and to care others. So you see, the end of this letter, it's not a hodgepodge of disconnected, arbitrary commands. It's all held together by worship. And, and the worship of God is not because he's insecure and he needs it. It's because our souls were created for it. Our souls flourish in it. We don't have an insecure God that needs our worship. We were created for worship. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And from this rhythm of worship of the God of peace, we can build this community of peace. And this rhythm of worship is critical. You know, when you go to fill up your car with gas, the regular, which most of us put in, unless you have the misfortune of having a high-performance engine that requires 91 octane, if you, can put in 90, if you can put in 89 octane in your car, which most of us are, and some of you have engine, and you're right now you're like, does my car take 91 octane? You're probably putting 89 octane in a car that needs 91 octane, if you have a nice car, by the way. And what is that doing? What it means is, it's basically just you're just moving around through life beneath your potential. Because your injectors are gummed up, everything's gummed up, it needs a higher burn rate, and your engine is not functioning the way it was supposed to, because it wasn't actually created for that, it was created for something higher. And without the rhythms of worship, you as a human being are created for worship. Therefore, you have no choice on whether you will or will not worship. The question is, what do you worship? Where do you worship? And is it bogging down your soul? And this is why we are given the command in verse 16, rejoice always, pray continually. An intentional connection. (laughs) Rejoicing always is impossible without praying continually. It's a ridiculous call to rejoice in everything. It's impossible without ongoing prayer to be dialed out of our own worldview and into the reality of the goodness of God's uh, direction for all of humanity and that we've been swept up into that. That's the reason we can rejoice in anything. It says pray without ceasing in verse 17. To pray without ceasing, it doesn't mean you physically your life stops because all you do is pray. It means it's a posture of dependency. If you're in prayer, that's dependency. If you don't pray, that's self-sufficiency. If you are praying continually, that means you just have an ongoing flow in your life of dependency. So yes, there's times where we, we carve out of our day, maybe in the morning, maybe dinner time, maybe evening, where we carve time out to pray. And that's good and helpful and nourishing, and we should. But this call to pray always, it just means there's a, there, is a, uh, there is a rhythm of worship in our life where we just get really good at closing the door in our car and before we're going, taking that 30 seconds to recenter ourselves because we're feeling the anxiety, the stress, the anger, the frustration. Whether, whether we're just flowing through life to have those moments of prayer, it's a posture of dependency. Uh, one of my favorite prayers in the Bible is when the walls of Jerusalem are destroyed. Nehemiah wants to rebuild them. He goes to the king. 
His face is sad. If you go to the king and your face is sad, the king's like, I don't like your vibe. I'm going to kill this person. That's how the ancient world worked. Don't kill my vibe. And Nehemiah is about to go in. He's like, oh my goodness, I'm definitely going to kill the king's vibe. And the king says, what do you want me to do for you? And here's what the text says. I love it. I prayed to the Lord and said to the king. It's a pretty quick prayer if you think about it. If you break that down. I prayed to the Lord and said to the king. The flare prayer. And so you see, part of, part of Christian maturity is just going through life with a posture of prayer, which includes, through the rhythm of our day and our week, lots of flare prayer. Oh, God, help me. It's just this constant acknowledgement, this constant dependency. And so you see, being a person of prayer isn't about, are you a good Christian or a bad Christian? Those categories are irrelevant. It's, am I a nourished Christian or a malnourished Christian? Um, is my spirit hydrated or dehydrated? Is my soul being nourished or am I a spiritual anorexic because I am just living in self-sufficiency all the time? It's not about being good and bad. This is a function of maturity and immaturity. And so it, this, this moves on to don't quench the spirit. Right? You can, you, you, one of the ways you can quench a flame is by just ignoring it. And so this call to this posture, this clinging to, just clinging to God. Because if we don't, we're going to cling to something very small. Consider for a moment one of the most prevailing conversations of our time. You've got to listen to yourself. You've got to listen to your body. You've got to listen to your mind. You've got to listen to your emotions. That is good. It is also limited. You do need to listen to your body. You wear it down. You do need to listen to your emotions. You do need to listen to your inner self. You do need to listen because that diagnosis is, diagnosis is going to help you with what happens next. So it is a good thing, but it is an, it is an incredibly limited thing because if, if all I do is constantly take notes and, and constantly stay curved in and swirl around within myself, I've got to listen to myself, I've got to listen to myself, I've got to listen to myself, this inward swirling is not going to help me get out of what I'm in. I need to curve out, and I need to curve up, and I need hopeful dependency, and I need the very creator of the cosmos to lift me out of the darkness, to lift me out of the horrors of this moment that I'm in. I've got to be curved out. I'm going to go to, Susan and I are on holidays uh, for a week starting tomorrow, and tomorrow I'm going to I'm going to go to Toronto Motorsports. I'm going to track my car. It's been a very long time since I've done that. I've been looking forward to it. I downloaded an app that's got all the telemetry. tells me what the car is doing. And I, so I just drove around the neighborhood very slowly. And I, and I uh, came back to my house. And I was just nerding it out trying to figure out this app. And I'm sitting there staring at the telemetry. Oh, where's the braking point? Entry point. Exit point. Entry speed. Exit speed. Braking speed. Throttle response. How many Gs are on, the, on my 2010 Honda CRV? Zero. Um, how is this going? And so when I go to the track tomorrow, I do an out lap, three hot laps, a cool down lap, I come in, I look at the telemetry. But here's the thing, you can't, you, you can't move forward if you just sit there and stare at the telemetry, stare at the telemetry, stare at the telemetry. At some point, you've got to look, you've got to drive. At some point, you've got to curve out, you've got to open your eyes, you've got to live, you've got to race your line. And so the apostle is saying, don't quench the spirit. You've got to curve out. Don't be a person who's not praying, because that means you're just staring at your telemetry. When God wants you to feel the wind in your hair as you just turn to Him and trust in Him and worship Him and live in this place of worship. To borrow from Spurgeon, 
When joy and prayer are married, their firstborn child is gratitude. He goes on to say, give thanks in all circumstances. He goes on to say, don't treat the prophecies with contempt. What in the world could that mean? The church is three, three weeks old. Hey, don't treat the prophecies with contempt, guys. I'm like, what? We're Greek. We don't even know what the prophecies are. It's like he's assuming that they're going to become students of God's ways. Prophecy doesn't just mean it's fortune-telling. Prophecy, predominantly in the Old Testament, was reminding the people of God what God said, what was written, what he had spoken. And so he's saying this very young church, look at what God has said and has spoken, and find ways for this to be nourishing in your own life. And I close with this. May the God of peace sanctify you through and through. In the Greek, some of your translations will say, you know, totally or completely. In the Greek, through and through, it's a word that only appears once in the entire New Testament. And it's right here. It's a compound word that the apostle sort of puts two words together. Halos and talios. Halos is whole. And talios, talos, is trajectory, the end goal. And the apostle says, may the, may the God of peace sanctify you in a multi-layered, holistic, glorious, beautiful fashion towards his end goal. He is faithful and he will do it. This means that if you back out and you look at the entire biblical narrative, and I'm going to bring this up in future weeks, so I'm not spending any time on it now. We think that life is about us and God's here to help and make it great. The biblical narrative is life is not actually about us. Life, life is about a God who created us so that we would live life with him and flourish in him. And he has a goal for humanity. And he's moving toward that goal. You can get on or off that divine bus. But that is happening whether you like it or you believe it. Whether you believe it or not. There is a telos. And for some, the telos is you die, you pass into a plane of non-existence, and that's the end of it. No. The telos for God is no life in him, flourishing in him, renewal of our bodies in this world. God will sanctify us toward the telos. He will do it. So, Redeemer, may the God himself, the God of peace, sanctify us through and through. May our whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls us is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray.